Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. The world and the world of technology is changing so fast. And the question is, can society keep up? Do we have the governance infrastructure and the policy frameworks in place to ensure that technology serves the greatest common good? The Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution was created by the World Economic Forum to ensure that there's a global governance architecture in place so technology developed around the world benefits all humans, supports all life in the biosphere, is unbiased, is non-destructive to the environment, and is agile, adaptive, and interoperable. In our interview today, Svika Krieger, the Head of Technology Policy and Partnership at the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, shares with us his thoughts about how the Center can create the right environment and necessary multi-stakeholder discussions to mitigate technology used for bad and to inspire technology used for good. From AI to IoT and cybersecurity, it's a fast and fascinating conversation. Let's listen in. I'm here with Svika Krieger, Head of Technology Policy and Partnership at the WEF. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's just jump on in. Maybe you could help our audience understand what we'll be talking about here at the annual meeting on the technology front. Well, the topic of our annual meeting this year is Globalization 4.0, and that's really about looking at the global architecture in the context of the fourth industrial revolution, which is this unprecedented era of change when it comes to technology. The technology is changing at such fast speeds and to such scope and scale. Is the international architecture, the governance architecture, fit for purpose? Can it keep up with this pace of change and make sure that these technologies are benefiting people, that we're really capturing these technologies in a way that benefits society? So that that's really the topic of the annual meeting. And I think you'll see throughout the agenda, both in our public sessions and also in the private sections, that the question about these emerging technologies and how can we shape them in a way that's beneficial to society, that's one of the key questions on the agenda here this week. Brilliant. Well, I love how you framed it as a question, can we create this new architecture of governance? So maybe answer that in a rhetorical way, yes, we can. And what's needed in order to then frame that uh, international governance architecture? Well, I would say right now there isn't really any international institution that is fit for purpose to Mm -hmm. do that. And so what the forum is trying to do is create a space and to actually fill that governance gap through the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution that we've created first with the headquarters in San Francisco. And then we've opened offices in Japan, China, and India over the past few months. And we're actually later this week going to be announcing some new offices that we're going to be opening across the globe, recognizing that there's this gap in the global architecture. And I think there's a few things that you need in order to address that. One is that it has to be multi-stakeholder. It can't just be governments Mm -hmm. because governments are by nature slow and deliberative. Mm -hmm. Inclusive, or most of them are, have an inclusive policy-making process. But the problem is that as these technologies change at a faster and faster pace, the traditional policy-making processes can't keep up. There's either going to be a policy vacuum or you're gonna have uh, hastily constructed or reactive policies. So some spaces where a lack of policy is going to get in the way of of these technologies, or a lack of policy is going to uh, let these technologies run amok. And so you need to have 
the private sector part of that conversation because they are the ones who are really driving these technological trends. And so one, it has to be multi-stakeholder. And the other piece of this is that it really has to be interoperable, which is that you can't have a patchwork of, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 different regulations around the world, let alone you know, right. 180 different regulations around these topics, given that the world is so interconnected and these technologies are interconnected, you can't have a patchwork approach because that's actually what's going to get in the way of innovation. And the last thing that I would say is that it needs to be agile. You can't have this, you know, sclerotic, ingrained approach where you put out a policy and that remains the policy for the next 20 years because the technology is changing so quickly. Mm -hmm. We need our approach to governance to be equally agile and adaptive. And adaptive to what? To the changing technology. I mean, this is, you know, if you're looking at something like artificial intelligence where algorithms are training themselves, you have uh, deep learning and neural networks. Every day, the technology is changing and developing. And, you know, my background is in government. I spent most of my career working for the U.S. government. And I can't tell you how many stories I've had uh, when I served as our senior advisor for technology and innovation where, you know, we'd spend two or three years working on a policy around a particular technology. Mm -hmm. And that policy was outdated the day that it came Came out. out. Let's then start talking about uh, tech for good, because I know this is a really important topic for both you and myself. And on one hand, you know, we have, just for an example, we have VR and AR technology in the emergency room delivering essential real-time 3D visualizations of a brain tumor to a surgeon so he or she can remove the, the tumor in the most non-invasive, precise way, save lives. Then you've got VR companies, maybe even the same ones, that are creating these immersive environments that are, you know, gaming environments that bring youth into a very real warlike environment and, you know, with the haptics. And so they really feel like they're on this battlefield. And I can only think of, you know, how that might affect their their psyches as they're developing as individuals and social beings and citizens. Then for AI, you've got speech recognition and translation, which you can only imagine would help bring the world closer together because, you know, all of a sudden you can speak to other people from different places and imagine how the whole world would open up and the conversation could essentially evolve truly globally. Then you have AI and your global risk report uh, reported as, as being one of the, the key concerns driving cyber attacks. And so here you have a technology which truly could be used to help unify the world and then the same technology also to disrupt it. So how do we resolve this or what can we do in framing this architecture that you talk about in order to protect against the bad and really inspire the good? It's a great question. And I think artificial intelligence is such a great technology through which to explore that question because it really is an intersection of so many different trends in the fourth industrial revolution. And I think that the promise is certainly tremendous in terms of how it could help us solve such a wide variety of global challenges. I mean, you have AI applied to genomic data so that we could create precision medicine approaches to healing diseases. So it's not something you don't get a generic treatment, you get something that's targeted to your specific genetic makeup, maybe actually intersecting with your behavioral data from your Fitbit, the environmental data from the sensors in your house, and you're able to actually create a tailored treatment that's more effective for you as a person. We have new approaches to precision agriculture that are starting to merge where you combine data from IoT sensors, uh, farmers inputting data through their smartphones. You have drones capturing and collecting data, micro satellites and cube satellites allowing us to create more real-time visual data and extracting insights from that that can help you know farmers during monsoon season 
seasons and optimize their crops. I mean, there's just the, the sky's the limit in terms of how AI could really benefit society. So we're really in an unprecedented age of technological advancement and the ability to impact people all over the world. And that's really one of the hallmarks of the fourth industrial revolution is that it's not just in developed economies. It's really, you know, if you have a smartphone, you can tap into these fourth industrial revolution technologies. But certainly there are challenges with AI. And you, you talked about cyber hacking and the weaponization of AI. You right. have um, what we call lethal autonomous weapon systems where you mm. can have armed drones or robots that are going into battle and can make decisions on their own in oh terms of who to target. Yeah. And there's an ongoing debate now, even at the United Nations, about whether we should create a new Geneva Convention around outlying lethal autonomous weapons and, you know, this whole idea of humans in the loop and whether you, in order to have a, a killing machine, does there need to be a, a human on the other end of it, you know, which raises all sorts of ethical questions of are humans more ethical than robots? Like if we, yes, if we could program question. a robot to say, and, and set the algorithm to optimize for, let's say, minimizing civilian casualties, an algorithm might actually do a better job at that than a human operator because they can't process that amount of information in terms of all the who's in the field of vision and all of that. But I think beyond that, to counterbalance the tremendous potential of AI, there are some very serious concerns around job dislocation that's mm -hmm. going to come from automating a lot of these different industries. There's issues with AI itself in terms of bias and discrimination. We see a lot of AI algorithms that are biased against women, that are biased against people of color. And it's, it's largely because the data sets are biased. And, you know, there's been all these reports coming out recently about facial recognition technology not being able to detect the faces of African-Americans because right. the data sets they're training yeah. on are primarily white people. But I was just Sorry. reading a, um, an academic article that said, you, know, you, you had mentioned earlier about the translation, which could help mm -hmm. connect us. But there was a, a study that came out that in Spanish, for example, in the translation apps, they tend to translate female pronouns into male pronouns. So when it says she said, it translated into he said, mm -hmm. just because the data sets are predominantly men. And so, you know, so, so we're seeing a lot of bias, even in, for example, there's a computer assisted sentencing or algorithm assisted sentencing where judges are using AI algorithms to decide whether we should let someone out on parole or on bail. And there's studies that are coming out now that they tend to sort of overestimate the risk of people of color and underestimate the risk of white people. And so we're starting to see the bias of these algorithms right. creep into all of these use cases. And so there's absolutely a need to come up with standards around this. And to get to your question specifically about, you know, what is the role of the global governance architecture in this? I think that for some of these challenges, absolutely, there's a role for government to play, to step in and set standards. And when we talked about lethal autonomous weapons, there's certainly, that's something that needs to be dealt with at a sort of state level, a government it, level. But it sounds like also having diversity in the workplace is such an important point. I mean, the algorithms are designed by engineers and technologists. And so if you have a diverse group of engineers and technologists who come from different walks of life, cultures, backgrounds, then you can mitigate Absolutely. those risks of we, bias. We, we have a, um, an expert here this week at, at the World Economic Forum from the MIT Media Lab. You know, she, she tells the story of when she was a computer science undergrad, she had to do a class project where she had to train a robot to play peekaboo, but she couldn't do it because the robot couldn't see her because she was African-American. So she had to ask her roommate to wow. 
step in for that. Very interesting case studies. And it really gets back to the fact that, you know, AI is here and affecting our everyday lives. And you're mentioning, you know, the prison scenario. It's the same with insurance or looking for health insurance. Home loans. Home loans. So you go to the finances. Yes, there's a lot of potential bias in these systems that people's lives will directly be affected. This is the real challenge and opportunity, I guess, for creating an infrastructure to protect against that. So thank you. Now let's move on to another interesting topic around technology, I think, cybersecurity. So paint us a picture of the idyllic world where, you know, we live in the Internet of Things, the IoT world, where all devices are connected, the amazing, smart, connected home, village, city, world. Tell us what that looks like, the optimal scenario. Well, you know, connected devices, especially when they intersect with the promise of 5G, allow us to optimize all aspects of life, you know, whether it's traffic congestion, just as one topic, when you have cars being able to interact with each other, interact with the infrastructure, interact with the traffic lights, when we have real-time data and we can, you know, especially if we're looking into the future with autonomous vehicles, where cars can communicate with each other, they can communicate with the environment. Amazing. You have a world, you know, that has lower carbon emissions, you have a world that has lower commute times. You have people that can live further out. So you have less urban density and you have more economic opportunity for people who live outside of urban centers, you know, not to mention quality of life and being able to watch movies while you're driving. <laughs> but, uh, and so I love this world. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm excited to live there as well. <laughs> and so certainly looking at your connected home where your refrigerator notices that you're out of a product and it's able to automatically order that and have it sent to you on an <laughs> autonomous robot delivers oh, no. it. I mean, we're already seeing autonomous robots delivering food from your house. I mean, there's now robots delivering your mail, yeah. you know, getting well, rid of medications too to elderly people that can't actually shop or go out. Yeah, well, speaking of devices, you have IoT uh, or connected uh, medication where right. doctors can actually track. They have sensors that are small enough and cheap enough that you can put them on a pill so a doctor can actually track if you've taken your pill. Wow. The yeah. world is changing. And that's today. That's, that's not today. that's not in the future. That's, that's not today. science fiction, that's science fact. Fantastic. Absolutely. So then what about this world gone awry? What does that look like? Which is a sad scenario. What if all goes wrong? Well, I think there's a, a few issues. You, you mentioned cybersecurity, and I think absolutely the more that our devices are connected, the more susceptible they become to hacking. And, you know, there's been stories in the news lately of people hacking cars. I was meeting with some Chinese government officials, and they referred to autonomous vehicles as unguided missiles. Uh-oh. Right, where you someone could could hack into an autonomous vehicle and and have it go into a crowd of people, and so absolutely there there's the risk of hacking, but there's more risks beyond that. Another big risk is privacy. We have these home assistants in our houses recording our conversations. Our children are interacting with them. What kind of data is being collected about us? Where is that data stored? How is that data being used? Those are questions that the average consumer isn't asking. Right. And even in smart cities, where you know there's lots of amazing use cases where you can be collecting data on you know, how often parks are being used and where there's potholes and all these ways that we could improve city services. But that means collecting a lot of data right. about people right. that they didn't necessarily opt into and did not give their permission for that data to be used. There are ways to anonymize it, but you know, that conversation isn't really happening right now. But I think as more and more of our data is being collected and 
that it could be deployed in ways that don't necessarily serve us or certainly we don't give consent to, I think that there's going to be increasingly sort of potential for harm and abuse. Well, I mean, but that's exactly why the WEF exists as a forum to help guide those conversations and allow for the real sort of governance issues to come up in such a forum where you have public, private, civic interests involved. And it sounds like that's exactly what the discussion will be here at yeah. the WEF. And, it's, and I will say it's discussion, but it's also action, right? Because what's, mm, what's unique about the World Economic Forum is that we can bring together yes. The key companies were, you know, which is what we're doing, not if, but what we are doing is bringing together, you know, the key companies to co-design protocols and standards and Mm -hmm. norms and frameworks and saying, Mm -hmm. you know, when data is collected, this is how long it's kept for. These are legitimate use cases. These are not legitimate use cases. And here's the transparency that we're going to provide so that consumers can make informed decisions. It starts with transparency. We don't even know when you buy a home assistant, it doesn't say anywhere on the box any of those things. So you can't even make an informed decision. And then governments can come to the table. And a lot of these, you know, the forum, as you know, we have 60 heads of state coming. We have hundreds of cabinet ministers from governments around the world. And uh, when governments are the ones who are doing a lot of these investments in smart cities infrastructure, and we have a number of sessions happening this week, both on the public schedule and some closed door private meetings with government leaders and saying, when you invest in smart city infrastructure, you need to be asking yourself these questions, not just about cybersecurity, which we talked about, and about privacy, but also about equity and inclusion. How can we make sure that this is benefiting right. all of your citizens and not just widening the income inequality or, or other issues around distribution? And right. so we are creating, bringing these people together to create these standards that mm-hmm. they can then go back to their countries and say, okay, when we make these multi-million and even billion dollar investments in smart city infrastructure, we can make sure that all of these issues are, are considered. That's brilliant. And I love the fact that you focused on action. You picked up on it's not just a discussion and it's not just at the annual meeting. It's important to emphasize the fact that this is happening so fast. And at the same time, the World Economic Forum is invested in the fourth industrial revolution in such a way that, like you said, you're opening these offices. I think it was just over this year you've opened all these offices. Yes. And so the pace and scale of taking this issue seriously of developing governance around the digital technologies is something that we should celebrate. One last question, because I know that you're quite a busy person here. It's an important meeting on technology. Let's just talk about the pace and scale of change. Are we moving too fast? Natural evolution of species takes, you know, millions of years and time to react to the environment and really set in stone certain, not in stone, but in an agile sense, you know, different structures and systems to help support a dynamic evolution that's naturally intelligent. Are we moving too fast with technology and, and looking at like quantum computing? Now we're not just talking zeros and ones, but spheres, these quantum bits, and how that can just expand exponentially our sense of how we can collect data. And like you said, 5G and what about 6G and 7G? It seems a bit overwhelming. And in your risk report, also, it's interesting to note 700 million people or so are sort of feeling very anxious and have this clinical psychological stress diagnosed. And so I'm wondering if there's such an association with, you know, our own personal health, societal health, and how fast we're moving in this digital age, this digital stream. Certainly. I mean, one of the hallmarks of the fourth industrial revolution is that speed of change, and it is certainly unprecedented. I mean, if you look at previous industrial revolutions, let's use an invention like the telephone. It took 
the telephone about 75 years to reach a million users. It took Pokemon Go less than a month. Oh, wow. <laughs> What an interesting comparison. And so it, it is, you know, we're really looking at unprecedented speed here in terms of the adoption of emerging technologies and how fast those technologies are changing. And, you know, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's happening. We, there's no stopping it. You know, there may have been folks in the past who've tried to slow down the pace of development, but given the global nature of this technological revolution, and in many ways that it democratized access to technology, we're not going backwards. It's, it, there's no and value. And we're not slowing down. We're not slowing down, and there's no use in trying to think of ways to do that. We actually would rather need to be thinking about how can our institutions adapt? How right. can government adapt? adapt? How can our companies adapt? to ensure that the speed of this technological change, how can we mitigate any of the negative impacts of that? And how can civil society and our activist groups and our advocacy groups and NGOs, and how can we amplify the voices of citizens at a time when technology is changing so quickly? And so, yes, it absolutely is changing at an unprecedented pace. And that's why it's important, as you said, to have these conversations, not just for one week of the year here at the annual meeting, but to have them year round through the work that we do around the globe globe because we don't have the luxury of waiting. So here's to human evolution in the digital age. Thank Amen. you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast, where we're committed to spotlighting intuitive vision, nature-inspired knowledge, and native wisdom in our world. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. There, we have a growing portfolio of podcasts with world leaders on nature, sustainability, climate, and tech for good. Thank you for awakening natural intelligence in the world. Have a beautiful day.